Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. I'm feeling particularly polar today because right now where I am sitting in Leeds in the UK, it is snowing heavily, despite me being pretty much right in the city centre. I'm not sure what's going on, but I am feeling particularly polar, so that's quite apt, isn't it? Uh, I hope you liked today's episode. It was I had a really good time chatting to our guest. I mean, I always have a lovely time speaking to the guest, but today was a particular joy. She is a PhD student from the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge, and her project is she is compiling an oral history of women in polar science, and particularly in Antarctica. Basically, she's going around and she's interviewing all the first women who were in involved in polar science. It's a really good one. There's quite a few, a couple of jarring facts. We talk about intersectionality. We talk about other minorities in polar science. And we also talk about her her route, how she got into it, because it's a little bit different to the guests we've had on in the past. So yeah, I hope you enjoy. As a slight side note, and I always ask my guests after, the, um, after we finish the interview, if they have anything that they want to add or amend just before we go live and um, she thought of an extra question that I didn't get around to asking during the actual interview so we just tagged that on the end and I'm sorry if it's a little bit choppy but we are not <laughs> we're not a, a highly paid professional podcast service we are <laughs> doing it more for the love of it so uh, yes I, I hope you enjoy today's episode Okay, everyone, please welcome to the stage, Morgan Sieg. Hi, Morgan. How's it going? Hi, Jack. I'm doing fine, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on to Polar Times. So this is the first bit of the podcast. We call it the icebreaker. And I basically ask you this following question. Who are you? How did you come to polar life? And uh, what do you do now? All right. Um, so my name is Morgan Sieg. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge, based at the Scott Polar Research Institute. And uh, my dissertation is about the history of um, how women came to work in the Antarctic field over the course of the 20th century. So I'm a, a human geographer, and the humans who I study are polar researchers and specifically Antarctic scientists and specifically Antarctic scientists in the 20th century. So I'm looking at Antarctic institutions operating uh, between the 1950s and the 1990s and trying to understand how they changed over time to become more diverse and inclusive, essentially, with a focus on women. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more later on. So I'll leap over to the next question, uh, which is, how did I come to the polar world and based on my conversations with my fellow early career researchers in the polar world, I think I came to this a little bit unusually. I started as a dishwasher on an Antarctic research station. So <laughs> this begins uh, at the age of nine, <laughs> when my family moved from New York City, which is an extreme environment in its own right, uh -huh. <laughs> to the American state of Kansas which um, is where Dorothy Gale from The Wizard of Oz is from. So that's a very different environment from New York City. And I encountered giant storms and tornado warnings and sort of big weather. And the idea that the natural environment could be so big that humans could appear very small by comparison, which is not the case in New York City, where human life really dominates the landscape. Um, and I became fascinated by natural disasters and big weather and big landscapes. And by the time I got to high school, um, in the United States, the senior yearbook often offers uh, a little area where each graduating senior can say what their life ambition is. And by the time I was 17 years old, my life ambition was to see a volcano, a tornado, and the Antarctic. So I thought I'd be an earth scientist. I thought I would study Mount Erebus in Antarctica. I am not a scientist. I am a, <laughs> a researcher of, of human cultures, uh, humanities and social sciences. But in my early 20s, I encountered a, a film called Encounters at the End of the World, it's a documentary by Werner Herzog about the people who work in Antarctica. And what's interesting about that, um, which maybe some of your listeners uh, may or may not be familiar with, is that Herzog is filming and interviewing a really eclectic group of people working for the U.S. Antarctic program who are, in some cases, scientists, but in most cases, um, supporting science 
That means for a lot of these Antarctic institutions, to keep the science running, you need people who are able to do support work, whether that's going out into the field um, and searching for crevasses ahead of time or flying the airplanes that take people into the remote field or on a larger research station, cooking the food that the scientists eat or the plumbers who make sure that the pipes don't burst in the dorm rooms and the cafeteria. Um, So at McMurdo Station, there are plumbers, firefighters, carpenters, uh, fuels operators, heavy equipment operators, everything required to keep a small town running, essentially. And so uh, watching this documentary, I thought, you know, my God, I I could do some of those jobs. And I thought, this is a documentary. Those are real jobs. I could do those jobs. Mm -hmm. So I applied for the one I was qualified for, which was to wash dishes in the McMurdo Station galley. And I got that job and I worked at McMurdo Station for two summer seasons. And that changed my life entirely and ended up sort of sparking what has appears to be becoming a a lifelong fascination with and commitment to Antarctic issues, but now on the research side. And uh, McMurdo Station is, as you say, part of the US Antarctic program. Is it the biggest station that they have? Yes, it is. to my knowledge, the biggest station anybody has. Uh, Yes, it particularly (laughs) blows my mind coming from the British Antarctic Survey where, you know, like eight people over winter in some places or maybe even four. And then McMurdo, like you say, it's literally like a little small little town, isn't it? (laughs) It Oh yeah. In fact, at the peak of the summer season, um, at least in, I mean, everything is changing now with COVID, right? But uh, the years that I was there, um, 2011 through 2013, the peak of the summer season, there were about 1,200 people on this station. So that is a town. <laughs> it's hard to even picture. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. And then, so that kind of launched you into um, the polar world, shall we say. And then after that, it was like, uh, you did a master's, PhD, polar, kind of polar stuff. Yeah. 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 I think um, something that's interesting about McMurdo Station and probably anybody who works in a support role for any of the countries that have those sort of support roles available is that the work is very mundane, pretty tedious, and sometimes hideously boring and frustrating. Washing dishes 50 hours a week is very few people's idea of a dream job. <laughs> but even if you are on this you know, kind of ugly town, <laughs> you are in the Antarctic. And so I think that for people who, who might be interested in coming to the polar world and specifically to the Antarctic world, should be aware that even in, even in the worst of jobs at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, I'm washing dishes at McMurdo Station, But one evening, a friend of mine and I walked out towards the sea ice, which this must have been in February, when the sea ice is starting to uh, break up and to be washed out into the ocean and, and to melt. And that means that the whales that once would come down towards the continent and get stuck at the ice barrier and sort of eat, you know, whatever they were able to do there and and turn around, are now able to come further south into the McMurdo Sound until they hit the permanent ice shelf, the McMurdo Ice, um, the McMurdo Ice Shelf. Uh, And so they're able to come and sort of play in the waters in front of the station now that the temporary seasonal sea ice is blown out. And so my friend and I are sitting on the ice edge and it's cold, right? It's, oh, I speak Fahrenheit. I'm really sorry. So it's probably, you know, 15 or 20 degrees Fahrenheit out and we're bundled up sitting on this ice edge and we can hear in the distance. And so you whip your head around to see where it is. And there's an orca whale breaching. Oh my God, incredible. (laughs) And then you hear to the right and you whip your head around and you just catch the fin of, the, of another whale over to the right. And I think in an hour, we must have seen like 30 or 40 breaches while we were sitting there. So you can have just the most unbelievable transcendent experiences, no matter how boring your day job may be in these places. Sure. I think quite a lot of people would put up with a boring day job to have, you know, evening experiences like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so why don't we talk about a little bit now about what you're doing now and your current research. So as you said, you're looking at kind of like how Antarctic societies at research bases have changed over time, particularly looking at gender and attitudes to women, I suppose. So can you give us a brief history about kind of women's roles in polar places in the time that you have been looking at? Yes. And before I do that, I'm going to answer a related question that I, that I always mean to tell people to ask me because I think it's important, but I failed to okay, do Okay. So. No, excellent. No. Yes. <laughs> ask yourself this question. Yeah. <laughs> the question would be, why is it valuable to study something like diversity and inclusion in a place like Antarctica? 
What an incredibly niche topic. Who cares? And so my answer is, when you look at a place like Antarctica, you have to understand that you're looking at a continent that's ostensibly been set aside by the Antarctic Treaty. That's an international treaty setting Antarctica aside for peaceful scientific purposes in the service of all humanity. And so if we have institutions that are sending a very homogenous group of people to this continent, they're bringing fairly homogenous ideas about what we should be doing there, about what questions researchers should be answering, about what kinds of problems exist, and therefore how we should be addressing them to this place. And therefore the answers we come up with, which are meant to serve all of humanity, and the solutions we come up with, which are meant to also serve all of humanity, are very limited because of the limited scope of the, uh, of the approaches that people are bringing. So I think it's more important in international spaces than most people might think at, at first glance, that we make sure that if we have international spaces that are like um, international research labs, the Antarctic, the high seas, uh, the International Space Station, outer space, the Arctic, that we're making sure that, that everybody who's impacted both by the physical changes taking place in these environments with climate change and by the science coming out of them, that that full diversity of, of people is represented in the work that's being done there. And so in order to move forward and to make sure that we have more diverse representation in these communities, from my view as a historical researcher, we need to understand what's gone wrong in the past and why it is that we don't have a lot of diversity in these communities. Right now, women are still very heavily underrepresented in polar research communities, research communities at both poles, as are people of color, as are um, indigenous people when it comes to Western research communities, as is the LGBTQ plus community, and so on and so forth. So diversity and inclusion really matters in these places. And you asked why women, what's the history here that makes it significant? I'll walk you through a very brief timeline, which often strikes yes, people. Yes, please do. Which is that um, internationally, uh, people have been conducting science in the Antarctic for over 100 years since the earliest so-called heroic age uh, expeditions of people like Robert Scott, Ernest Shackleton, um, Mawson, and so on. Um, but no women were allowed to participate in those expeditions, although women tried. We have archival evidence, um, letters from women saying, we're, we're capable, we're ready, we want, we want to participate, denied on the basis of their sex. Not a single woman scientist was permitted to work in the Antarctic until 1956, when the Soviets included women on an Antarctic research vessel. Then Argentina, began allowing women to work on the continent in 1968, the US in 1969, the Australians in 1974, the UK. Women were categorically barred from working on Antarctic research stations until the mid 1980s. So this is already a recent history, but those are just the dates in which programs were formally open to women. That doesn't mean women were allowed on every station or in every kind of role. In the US, women weren't allowed to overwinter at the South Pole until 1979 even though by then we had equal opportunities legislation in place that expressly forbid sex discrimination in employment. And in the UK, some stations were closed to women on the basis of their sex until the mid-1990s. So this Which, is a pretty remarkable history. <laughs> that fact, when I found that out first, absolutely just kind of blew my mind, I really, I suppose. Especially thinking, obviously, I, I come from this privileged white middle-class background. I was born in the mid-1990s and yeah. was probably raised to think, well, not to think, but to, you know, to know that men and women are equal. And I'm using the air quotes there because it's not until you grow older that obviously you become aware that they're not. <laughs> so the fact that it was so recent is was quite shocking to me personally, I suppose. Um, so yeah, please continue. It was quite shocking to, to a lot of people at the time because this is belated in, in a way. Um, yeah, women yeah. gaining access to other spaces before the Antarctic. And, and I think that people often think that, um, well, it must be either because women weren't capable of you know, withstanding these extreme environments or because people thought women weren't capable of withstanding the extreme environments. But in fact, that's really not the case. It, the reason that women were, were barred from participating in Antarctic research, in, in many cases, in particular in the UK and the US, which are the two case studies that I've done the most research on, the prohibition on women in the Antarctic had very little to do with women themselves. It had much more to do with relations between men and women. So on the surface, women were barred from, from field sites. By, they were given this superficial excuse that there were simply no facilities for women in the Antarctic. So that meant there were no 
toilets for women. There were no bunks for women. And um, in fact, there's a, a report that um, a woman applied to work on a British Antarctic station in the, I think it was the mid 60s, and was given the reply, I'm, I'm sorry, you can't work in the Antarctic. We have no facilities for women there, but we don't think you'd like it there anyways. There are no shops. There are no hairdressers. So there's a lot of bias going into this cultural issues. Yeah. But of course, you know, these, those superficial um, excuses about why women can go down are underpinned by, by more profound and sort of deeper cultural issues. And I would say on the one hand, concerns about risk and sexuality. You see that throughout the archives. This isn't, this isn't me as a historical researcher sort of placing my analysis on, on the material I have. This is institutional leaders who are explaining why women can't come down among themselves and saying, if women are in the Antarctic, then people will start having sex in the Antarctic. The men will be distracted from their work. They'll fight with one another because they'll become jealous. And the whole station community will be destabilized. And there are quotes like, this is a a rough quote from an administrator of one of the Antarctic institutions who says, even in the best of circumstances, morale is always balanced on a knife edge. And even the smallest change can create a situation where, you know, everything collapses and, and we can't, we can't risk introducing new variables into this environment. Of, of course, these administrators at the time, were not talking about homosexuality. So the idea that women might bring sex to station is a whole other conversation that we could have later. Uh, but this was the fear. But then underneath those concerns about sex and risk are these pretty deep commitments, ideological commitments to exclusive masculinity in these environments. These are long histories of um, masculine adventure uh, linked to naval histories, linked to uh, broader military histories, to histories of science, to histories of exploration and colonialism. And there's this idea that the, the people who are being sent to these extreme places for, you know, flag planting exercises or to represent their country on the international stage are meant to be presenting an image of of the masculine strength of, of the nation. So the idea that women might be able to survive and thrive in the environment would totally undercut that whole narrative. If women can do it, then it's not terribly heroic, is it? Because women can't be heroes. This, you know, that's, that's not my view, of course. Um, you know. Yeah, it was interesting before when you mentioned the heroic age, you did the air quotes, which yes. I can see on Zoom, but uh, you know, just for people listening, <laughs> that's why, yeah, yeah, for that reason. There's an amazing quote from um, Admiral George Dufek, who uh, ran the U.S. Antarctic operations in the 1950s, and he says that women's presence in Antarctica would, quote, wreck the illusion of being frontiersmen going into a new land and the illusion of being a hero. So they're aware that there's, there's work being done to protect this idea of what this place is about and that women aren't compatible with those stories. Yes, I've heard this before. This, it's, this, like you say, this whole age of heroism, this idea that Antarctica as a continent was kind of maybe seen as a feminine entity you know lots of place names are named after women after wives and queens and stuff back home and this just idea that it was being explored and you know conquered by the white males at the time is a bit it's right it's not comfortable is it <laughs> well, I see it in the diaries of the of the early explorers too that antarctica is a virginal continent uh you know a, a mother of icebergs a, a woman lying in wait this is their language waiting yeah. to be quote, penetrated and, quote, conquered by men. You know, it's, it's fairly clear how gendered this story is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's kind of, I suppose, the history of uh, gender discrimination in polar times. What is the state of things currently? May I just say a few things which um, I suppose I've seen on Twitter and in the news? There's, there's obviously still not the equality um, that you would kind of desire. You know, you still see things like somebody a male high up academic getting prosecuted or um, disbarred or whatever because a lot of women have recently come forward only because they've recently felt like they've attained the stage of you know rank in academia where they can not be impacted by making these accusations which is you know that's that's horrific that's but that's happening now and you know things like on research vessels women being asked to not wear to like skin tight clothing which is like what a lot of you know base layers and cold weather clothing is so you know this is current this is 2020 and yeah, i see like things like i've seen this on twitter like in the last year is that accurate is that distorted what's you know what's the state of play yeah i, I think the state of play is 
in flux. I think that in the polar regions and in the case of what I study, the Antarctic, uh, you can't disentangle what happens on the ice, as we say, from what's happening in the rest of the world. That just like how issues of harassment, discrimination, bias, assault happen in you know the US or the UK or anywhere else in the world, they're going to happen in these remote and extreme environments. And there's evidence that they that those places can be riskier for women and people of other um, from other marginalized communities because they are so isolated. There are sort of cultural ideas that what happens on the ice stays on the ice, what happens on a ship stays on a ship, um, that people might feel they can explore different sides of themselves, which can be a wonderful experience, you know, for personal growth, but can also mean that people feel the rules from back home don't apply in these places. It is risky in these environments for that reason. And there are issues about who's responsible for making these places safe, um, which haven't yet been addressed, especially at the international level. Because in the Antarctic, for example, most people will travel to the ice through a national Antarctic program. But Antarctica is is by nature under the Antarctic Treaty System an international collaborative space. So what happens if you have, you know, an early career researcher from one country working on a vessel operated by another country in a, a slice of the continent that's been claimed by another country, whether or not it's recognized by its you know by the rest of the international community. And if their PI is from yet another country, there's a question about whose you know jurisdiction are they under, whose rules apply whose norms apply. Norms vary so much by country. So, I mean, in a, in a nutshell, then I guess your question about, is this accurate that these issues remain? Oh, absolutely. And I think that on, just as problems that we see throughout the world manifest in polar field um, settings, so too do social changes and social movements. The Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, these have had tremendous impacts on the polar research community. You see it in um, statements put out by polar organizations, which, however superficial they might seem in, in some cases, are an essential first step towards ensuring that we have real institutional change within these organizations. You see a new generation of polar researchers who are demanding more rapid and more widespread and more holistic changes than we've ever seen before. This is, you know, this generation of early career researchers is demanding an intersectional lens on change, which has never, to my knowledge as a researcher, been been seen before in these places. So from the perspective of, you know, gender equality, um, of women's equality, we're saying it's not enough to say, well, there are plenty of women in our community. It's, well, where are the black women? Where are the indigenous women? Women is not a, you know, we're not a monolith. This is a diverse group of people with overlapping and multiple identities whose, you know, the challenges they encounter are multiple and compounding. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of hope in the, the shifts that we're seeing in dialogue about diversity and inclusion and in the, um, the energy and commitment being brought by early career researchers, which is being um, mirrored and taken up across the, the career spectrum in some cases with you know mid-career and, and senior researchers and administrators also taking up this call um, to say, well, we acknowledge there's a problem at the very least and we need to think about what solutions there might be. So long answer to your question. I think the state is one where problems persist, but I have hope that change is really on the way. Improving. Things are improving, yes. Even in my kind of, I suppose, short time in polar research, you know, I've been, I only started my PhD in 2018, two years ago. So that's my breadth of polar experience. And, you know, that was the same year that Pride in Polar Research was set up. And exactly like you say, we're seeing more of these kind of diversity and inclusive programs and workshops. You know, most international conferences have a topic or a speaker at least on that kind of issue. So, you know, it's the same as everywhere. I think people don't tend to necessarily realise they have this idea that polar research, there's such fantastic, magical, remote places that any kind of field work is, although it's obviously field research, it's to some degree also like a holiday and an experience. And you kind of forget that actually it's a workplace which suffers yeah, from exactly. the same kind of discrimination and potential for you know incidents and harassment that any other workplace has and as you say more so because it's so far away from any law enforcement authority 
I suppose. Yeah. So yeah, that was just really interesting to uh, remember. You kind of just touched on it then. I wanted to talk to you about intersectionality and I read your um, commentary with uh, Renuka Badi and Ikra Chowdhury, which was obviously great. Um, can you just kind of explain what you mean by intersectionality and why that is potentially an answer or a, a helping, helpful way to think about things for the future? Sure. Um, so intersectionality is, um, is an approach to uh, diversity and inclusion that stems from the work of a researcher um, named Kimberly Crenshaw, Professor Crenshaw in the US, um, a legal scholar. And I think it's useful to understand how, um, where her idea about intersectionality came from before I apply it to polar research. Um, Professor Crenshaw found that there were cases in the US in which neither sex discrimination legislation nor civil rights legislation was sufficient to cover the problems faced by black women. For example, um, a black woman applying to work for a company um, that hired white women as administrators and black men in the factory could legally say they were neither discriminating against women nor against black people, but black women could not work in either of those jobs. And so they were in a way falling through the cracks of the legal system. And so the idea of intersectionality, she, she coined the term to help understand that, that identity issues, in this case, the original um, use of intersectionality, gender and race, um, that we can't see them as distinct. We have to understand that they are overlapping and that in those spaces of overlap, people experience compounding challenges that you're not just experiencing a challenge on the basis of your sex or on the basis of your race, but unique challenges arise at the intersections of those identities. And so the, that term has been taken up um, and used in many, many different contexts, both um, by researchers and practitioners working in the diversity and inclusion space. And we're understanding that intersectionality also applies to privileges, for example, being you know, white and male, as an example, or in my case, I experience privileges on the basis of my whiteness, even if I might experience barriers on the basis of my sex, um, that we all have these multiple and overlapping identities, uh, which can help us to understand much more nimbly, you know, with greater nuance, the challenges that are being faced by individual members of our community and break down the monolithic categories that we might have once or otherwise applied to them. So in polar research, the obvious example, thinking about gender and race, would be women of color, black women, especially um, in the U.S. I know in the U.K. we might say, um, you know, BAME women. The words that we use vary by, by context, of course. But when we look at how are we addressing diversity and inclusion issues at the international level in polar research, we have to understand that we're working with people who individually have identities on the basis of gender, sex, sexuality, race, ethnicity, nationality, language, um, disability, caregiving status, religion, and we, we can go on and on. And we need to understand that, for example, to say, well, we have, as I said, plenty of women in polar research is a wildly insufficient way to say that we have a diversity of perspectives and participation in our communities. Where are the black women? Where are the Muslim women? Where are women from non-English speaking backgrounds? And that's, I think, especially interesting um, when we think about this in the international context to say polar research, as I've said, is so international and so collaborative. And yet when we have these conversations about diversity and inclusion, they're, they're still pretty dominated by Western voices um, and by uh, especially European and, and North American and uh, Oceanic ideas about what diversity and inclusion is and should be. And so thinking intersectionally, means not only that our individual you know, institutional communities can be more mindful of, of who's participating and how well we're including them, but also at the international level, we think about, well, what biases do our um, national communities have when encountering other cultural communities? And how can we make it so that, for example, we can have these conversations across multiple languages? There is research coming out of South America about the history of um, gender exclusion in Antarctica that I can't read because I don't speak Spanish or Portuguese. And that's a huge limitation on my part. So, so how do we you know, bridge all of these different divides within our communities so that we can have more productive and holistic conversations to make sure that our international polar research communities, including the one that you and I have been members of it through APEX, to make sure that those are truly inclusive 
communities. Yes, indeed. It bothers me sometimes that this podcast is not in any other language and I'm, we're hoping to fix that in the future. So if, you know, if English is your second language, uh, stay tuned for future <laughs> developments. Is there any kind of, is there recognition of this discrimination or are they starting to apply intersectional thinking in high up organisations like SCAR or CAMLA or, you know, any, any nation's polar programme? Or, you know, have you started to see it kind of creep into policy already? Or is this a kind of new idea? So I certainly can't speak on behalf of any of the organizations, um, but I can speak about my observations um, to say, you know, I think we certainly have a long way to go before these ideas manifest as policy changes and then changes in practice. But I think we are seeing changes at the cultural level. There's certainly more demand, at least in the communities that I'm a part of, to take intersectional inequality seriously. And one example I might point to is the SCAR Open Science Conference that in 2018, at Polar 2018, um, we had a women's luncheon, which was really wonderful. It included a, a panel of speakers. I was on the panel and we were really trying to get across that there are still outstanding problems, that women are facing these problems. And we sort of touched on the fact that women are not a monolith, that you know, women from different backgrounds have experienced different challenges. But by and large, we were just trying to get across the point that these are still problems. And then fast forward to GAR 2020, the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research's uh, big conference that happened just this past summer. And suddenly intersectionality is a main feature of the diversity and inclusion workshop that took place. And there were, I think, roughly 300 people participating in um, those presentations and workshops. And the term intersectionality was at the forefront of those conversations. Um, leaders of national Antarctic programs, regional polar programs, and SCAR itself were asked about these things. And also intersectionality came up implicitly as people asked questions like, what are you doing to um, promote the inclusion of black women in these conversations, that sort of thing. And that was, I think, um, a really powerful moment for uh, for everybody and, and for the organizers to see how much progress there had been in in cultural awareness and in discourse just in the past two years. And I think we have um, Black Lives Matter to thank for that in part by giving such a huge platform for this um, coming out of the US, but making such an impact globally, um, as well as growing awareness of intersectional issues in um, movements like Me Too and in our own institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Can I talk to you about your own research? So your PhD research? So you're talking, are you compiling a kind of oral history from, you know, from the time period that you said at the beginning from, uh, you know, women and polar researchers then? Can you tell me a bit, a bit more about that? Absolutely. Uh, and, and I should say that part of what's Part of what's a, the a challenge in, in researching and advocating around um, diversity and inclusion is wanting to point out the problems because we need to fix them urgently and also wanting to celebrate progress and to tell future polar researchers that this field is, is not without its problems and also is amazing and worth joining. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a fine balance to think about. I've been thinking about that since I asked you to come on. I was like, well, what's going to be the take-home message from this? I guess we'll just, <laughs> all those things you just said, yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, I am doing this oral history project and, and I hope that that messy message will come through in, in this. Um, I'm doing an oral history project that documents the stories of the first generations of women to work um, in the Antarctic field. So there have been hundreds of oral histories done with Antarctic scientists and support workers, um, but very few were done with women. And many of the oral histories that were done with women were actually done with the wives of men who went to the field. Um, right. So uh, this is a, a pretty big gap in the material that's available both for re researchers trying to study this history and also in material that's available to inspire future generations to hear about what these you know, experiences are like. So I've been, um, my PhD research is focused on the US, my master's research was focused on the UK. So the oral histories are 
primarily with um, American women who were among the first to work either at their field sites or in the seasons they worked, um, because as I said, that timeline varies. It was a gradual process of change. So I've done over 70 interviews, but that includes some with men as well, trying to get, for example, perspective on their female colleagues who've passed away if, if those women were very close with some of their male colleagues. Um, and I am hoping that about 30 will become publicly available oral histories with women. Um, many have already been signed off and they are now in the, in the public sphere through the American Institute of Physics. Um, but the interviews are incredible. They're very, the women I interview have very diverse experiences. Some emphasize to me the challenges of being a woman in the field in the late 60s or the 70s or the 80s, even the 90s. And some emphasize the incredible life-changing experience of working in the field. And I think that for most women, there was some combination of of both. One really interesting thing is that I began my research before Me Too, and I am finishing my research after Me Too. And I'm finding that some individual women are are rethinking their own pasts in light of changes in, in current events that as they, they see these demands coming from particularly younger generations of, of women saying, these are the problems we demand change, that, that some more senior women are starting to reflect on their own pasts and either think, oh, maybe it's time for me to, to speak out about these things or to say, why didn't I experience those things? And some women don't have any trouble in the field and that's wonderful. But some women have, have said to me things like, you know, I wonder if maybe the reason that I was able to thrive in this field is because I was the type of person who had, who was able to turn a, turn a blind eye to the challenges faced by women that maybe I had gender blinders on one, one woman said to me, and that's how I made it through. And we do see, frankly, a remarkable number of women in senior leadership positions in polar research right now. But as Marcia McNutt, who's the president of um, the National Academies of Science in the U.S. has said, you know, we need to make sure we're not just selecting for the best and that we are selecting for the best and the brightest and not the best and the brightest and the toughest and most determined that there's, you know, selection bias um, in how people make it through this, this pipeline. So that comes through in the interviews as well. But I would really be remiss if I didn't emphasize on behalf of the women that I've interviewed that many of them say, you know, this was just an incredible life altering experience that, you know, I I interviewed a woman who um, got her start in the Antarctic with the Antarctic search for meteorites, uh, walking around the ice sheet looking for meteorites that had landed on the ice and been compressed over (laughs) countless years and then popped up when the blue ice sort of revealed itself at a a turn in the glacier often. Um, I interviewed a woman who got her start flying over the Trans-Antarctic Mountains in the 80s using sort of remote sensing to, to try to identify what was underneath the ice. These are experiences that are... I mean, once in a lifetime for some of us and for many polar researchers become a a career that you interview a lot of women or a lot of people about, you know, their experiences in the field. And I think it comes through. These are just really powerful experiences that change the way people view their relationship with with the natural world. And that can't be understated either. Yeah, that must have been really such a fascinating topic and a project to do. Did you say that some of these interviews are available to listen to in the public domain? Where could people find them? if they were interested. We might put a link on the podcast. So there's only a few um, that are publicly available right now. There's, as you know, doing a podcast, there's lots of sign-offs required for, you know, <laughs> re-editing, post-it and so on. Um, but it's through the American Institute of Physics, the Niels Bohr Library and Archives. They have an oral history program and they funded um, many, but not all of my interviews. So many, but not all of my interviews will be um, archived there and some are currently available. And I mean, these are just some really remarkable people. One that I think is available now is Ellen Mosley Thompson, who until recently was the director of the Bird Polar and Climate Research Center in the U.S. at The Ohio State University, women who've had decades of experience in this field, reflecting on their experiences and changes they've seen. And yeah, they're pretty interesting. They're they're fascinating people for sure. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to have some of them on. <laughs> if yeah. any of them are listening right now, please get in contact. <laughs> awesome. Oh, fabulous. Okay, and so did you encounter, speaking of, you know, this intersectionality idea, did you interview many women of colour who were 
you know, were, were there many in this time period of polar research? The short answer is no, there were not many. But the more complicated answer is um, when we change the way we think about who's contributing to polar research, then there are more women of color who are participating. And I think we still in our communities sort of are, are limited by this idea that Antarctic research is, is something that, you know, heroic, you know, athletic bodies do in the field, um, just standing on an ice sheet and making a big discovery. But in fact, these Antarctic research happens with the support of countless people behind the scenes, technicians in the field. I mentioned, you know, the kind of job that I had as a support worker, but also people in the lab back home, administrators in the organizations and in the labs back home. Um, and so when, when we think about the enterprise of Antarctic research in a more holistic way like that, then suddenly you see that there are m many more people and many more different types of people who are contributing than if we think purely about Antarctic research as being done by heroic field workers. And so um, I, for example, um, I interviewed a woman who's been an administrator um, for the, at the National Science Foundation in their Office of Polar Programs for, for many decades. And she had some really fascinating and important insights about the field and how it's changed over the years. And that was the first interview in which the issue of um, discrimination and bias against Black women came up because this is the first person who I interviewed who had experienced it. And that's hugely important. I interviewed um, a woman named Marilyn Raphael. That's an amazing interview, which will be available through the American Institute of Physics soon. Um, who's a Trinidadian climatologist, and she is extremely influential in Antarctic research. Um, she's a leading climatologist, uh, has been head of the geography department at UCLA, but she hasn't done much field work. And so you might not see her in, in the same kinds of stories that you see, you know, names and and figures who, who come up more in stories of Antarctic research. Her research is mostly based in the U.S., uh, but she's a really important figure with an incredible story. And I also always make sure to ask my interviewees if they can share their observations about their community more broadly. So we talk mostly about their personal experience, but then I want to know what they observed about institutional changes taking place around them. And one interviewee pointed out to me that when the U.S. Navy began pulling out of Antarctica, the U.S. Navy used to lead the logistics side of um, the U.S. Antarctic program, and they began pulling out in the late 60s and continued sort of gradually withdrawing until 1999 and being replaced by um, contractors hired by the National Science Foundation. So as the Navy pulled out of the, that logistical role, station cultures became less militaristic, more inclusive, the whole environment changed and became more welcoming to women scientists and to women support workers in some cases. Suddenly you have this very sort of outdoorsy community taking on station support roles rather than the military community. And so that shift is often credited as being an important part of what impelled gendered institutional change in the U.S. Antarctic program because it was more welcoming to women. But if we look at this intersectionally and and think about where are the black women, black women are, are, are represented in much greater numbers in the U.S. Navy than in the Antarctic science community. Really? So That's interesting. <laughs> there were actually a number of, of black women and, and women of color more generally um, working in the Antarctic through the U.S. Navy in those decades in which the Navy was, was a central, playing a central role in logistical support for USAP, the Oceanarctic program. And as the Navy withdrew, the number of women of color on station decreased because they were being replaced by contractors. And there were many more white women in those contractor roles. So, um, so all of that is to say that, you know, just like the, the film Hidden Figures is, is about rethinking how we value different kinds of contributions to science and exploration. The same applies to our communities, that when we rethink who's making a valuable contribution, we see that, that there is more diversity than we think, and we're able to elevate either the histories or the current contributions of more people and start to dismantle more barriers so that there's even more um, you know, movement between different sectors and fewer barriers to next generations coming in as they can see themselves in these institutions in many different ways. Okay. And was there any one particular interview that really struck a chord or um, stays with you for any particular reason that you're at liberty to 
tell me about, of course. And if you say no, that's fine. We'll edit this question out. <laughs> uh, I have to say, some of the some of the interviews that that um, affected me the most, I you know, and sometimes we both cry in the interviews, the interviewee and myself. But not all of those interviewees are are comfortable making their stories public, and so those stick with me and they inform how I understand this history and our communities. But it's a shame that it's you know still a reality that those aren't going to become part of the public history. And mm. I hugely respect that preference by those interviewees. But I will say that one that I can talk about, which really struck uh, has stuck with me, is an interview with Terry Tickhill Terrell. She uh, was an undergraduate in 1969 when the U.S. Antarctic Program finally agreed to send women to the Antarctic for the first time. And she uh, that expedition, led by Dr. Lois Jones, was required to um, be an all-female expedition. They didn't want any mixing of the sexes in the tents in the field. So she had to find um, three women to accompany her. Uh, they had to be based in the remote field, sort of far from McMurdo, where they might mix too much with the men. And she, Lois Jones, needed a fourth person. And in strolled this plucky undergrad named Terry Tickhill. And, uh, and she ended up being the field assistant on this first female expedition through the U.S. Antarctic program. And she tells just the most amazing stories about being in the field. They were in the dry valleys and uh, the way that the men were so surprised to encounter her. Um, I'll tell one quick anecdote, which I'll just never forget that she shared. Um, She was walking around McMurdo Station and noticed uh, a man sort of following her with curiosity. and, And perhaps she was a bit uncomfortable or perplexed about why this is happening because they would go back to the station to do their laundry, take a shower, that kind of thing. And at one point she saw this young man crying and she approached him to say, why are you okay? Why are you crying? And he said to her, I just, I keep thinking you're a woman because they had been on this station for so long. And it was clearly a male enterprise that the idea that these female looking creatures might actually be women in the Antarctic was totally unfathomable to him that he thought he was imagining women on station. When of course it was just that, you know, they had finally been allowed. She has some great stories. Hopefully that'll be public at at some point. (laughs) Absolutely wild. (laughs) That brings us kind of to the end of the podcast. We're kind of running out of time because we've been chatting for so long. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, We like to call this section the Polar Plug, where I just give you two minutes uninterrupted to talk about any topic that you would like to advertise to the public. Do you have something in mind? Yes, and briefly... Two things. The first is that, as we sort of mentioned earlier, it's always a challenge to walk the line between making sure that everybody understands what the challenges are that are being faced by, you know, underrepresented and marginalized groups in our communities and making sure that we're making the institutional and cultural changes that will create a more diverse and inclusive community in polar research. That's hugely important, as is making sure that People who might like to join our communities know that there are many of us who are so excited to have you, whoever you are, and that we're working to create more inclusive communities and that the benefits of joining this community are, are pretty tremendous in many cases. The fieldwork, as this podcast is always you know, emphasizing, is just unbelievable. Um, and so are the, you know, just the collegial relationships you'll develop in whatever country you're in. So, so there's that balance that I, I hope we've been able to strike and I know your podcast does more generally. Um, But also I want to plug really quickly some amazing networks that are doing important work around diversity and inclusion in polar research. Um, Apex is working on the inclusion of early career researchers in the research community and doing it at an international level. They're wonderful. Um, So please join if you're an early career researcher. Minorities in polar research or polar impact is uh, a pretty new network that's doing incredible work um, to advocate for inclusion, uh, greater inclusion of uh, ethnic and racial minorities in our communities. And they have recently um, opened a a fundraising drive uh, looking for patrons. So check out their website as well. Maybe we can link to all of these. Uh, Women in Polar Science does really great work to um, promote the inclusion of women in our communities. And Pride in Polar Research, which you mentioned earlier, is um, doing amazing work to create a more inclusive environment for members of the LGBTQ plus community. So there's lots of, of communities of support here for whomever you are. Yes, whoever you are, polar science is for you. <laughs> yeah. It's important to understand this 
pretty major difference between research in the Antarctic and research in the Arctic, which is that there are no indigenous peoples in Antarctica. And there are, of course, many indigenous communities in the Arctic. And so when we talk about diversity and inclusion in polar research, it's necessarily going to look different in these two contexts. While in the Antarctic, it's essential to us that we create a research community that's inclusive of indigenous peoples around the world. In the Arctic, that conversation needs to be centered around the inclusion of indigenous communities from the start of research, from the planning of research, from the identifications of what questions are important to be asking in Arctic research. And I have colleagues in the Arctic research community who are um, doing amazing work in this area. There's uh, work being done at um, in institutions, grassroots organizations, by individual researchers, activists, by the indigenous communities themselves. And so I, I ought to leave it to them to say more about it because it's not my area of expertise. But yes, we absolutely need to, to foreground how important it is to, to maintain the inclusion of indigenous peoples as a central aspect of research and of diversity and inclusion work in Arctic research, especially. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the podcast. We'll link all those things you just said in our podcast description so you can find them really easily. A lot of them have Twitter, etc. So super easy to find. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Polar Times. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to like, rate, and subscribe on all of your little podcast apps, etc. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on Google, maybe other places we're hoping to expand, etc. If you would like to get in contact with us, please use our email. It's, the email is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. These are polartimes at gmail.com. So messages if you have a question for a polar person, if you just have some feedback, if you are, if you have any kind of polar life, if you're connected to the poles in any way, and you'd like to be on the podcast, we would love to hear from you, anyone at all, whether you're, you know, just washing pots and are contributing greatly to <laughs> polar society, or, you know, you're a master student or you're a director of Kamla, please we want to hear from everyone. <laughs> so, uh, yes, you can also uh, contact Apex uh, on Twitter at polar underscore research. And I think that's everything. All that's left is for me to thank my lovely guest today, Morgan Sieg. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Excellent conversation. I've enjoyed it very much indeed. Okay, so that's it for now. Play the jingle. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.